incredible church and what incredible people, an incredible facility, and an incredible pastor. Amen. I, uh, I, I've known your pastor now for several years and we've developed a good friendship and have worked on some projects together and even have a book that we've worked on together and is out there and so it's just such a privilege to be here with Dr. Hankins and with all of you and what an incredible town I've never been to Fairhope it's a secret but I think I'm going to bring my wife down here on a vacation sometime and maybe we'll visit with you in fact I'll just consider uh, First Baptist Church of Fairhope my, uh, my home church in Fairhope. How about that? Uh, you wouldn't mind as long as I sent my tithe, right? Uh, but, but I am honored to be here and thank you all for having me. And also, I want to uh, just, just help you feel at ease with me as your speaker for the evening because he said a moment ago that I was from Indiana. And it is true that currently I live in the state of Indiana in a city called Evansville. But I want you to know that though for some of you that means I'm from the godless north, I, um, I, for the first 10 years of my life, I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, which as we all know is a poor man's Alabama, but I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. And then from 10 on, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee. And even where I live now, uh, from the roof of my house, I can see Kentucky across the Ohio River. So I'm one of you, okay? That's what I want to get across to you. But I'm so glad to be here tonight. Your pastor set me up perfectly because I am going to be talking about something that is called Christian apologetics, which does not mean that I go around professionally apologizing for the gospel. Uh, on the contrary, it's the defense of the gospel, the defense of the Christian faith. And as he referenced already, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says that we should be ready and willing always to give a defense to anyone who asks us a reason for the hope that we have for our Christian hope, but to do it with gentleness and respect. So the Bible tells us, not just professional ministers, but the people in the pews, uh, regular everyday Christians who are not doing professional ministry, that we are to be people who know something about giving an answer, giving a defense for why it is that we believe what we do about Christianity. And this is not at all the America of 50 years ago where for many people it was just taken for granted that if you were a part of some kind of group, it would be the Christian uh, religion, it would be the Christian faith. Today, partly because of the internet, there are a lot of messages going around. Several years ago, one of the leading atheist voices was a man by the name of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens died, but before he died, he released a book entitled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now listen, friends, we have a victorious Savior, but when things like that are being said in the United States of America, it's time for God's people, even in places like Fair Hope, to know how to give an answer and say something about why it's reasonable to believe what we believe. Probably still one of the most popular atheists in the world is a man by the name of Richard Dawkins. Now this is going to be shocking what I'm about to read and it may offend some of you, not because there's any profanity but just because of the strength of what he says but I think it's important for you to hear it to set the tone for the evening. In his book, The God Delusion, that came out about 10 or 11 years ago, Richard Dawkins said the following, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, uh, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End quote. Now, that's shocking, right? 
And it is probably true that you're not likely to encounter many people on the streets of Fairhope who will say something as obviously blasphemous as what Dawkins has there said. But I rest, rest assured that that trickles down through the media, doesn't it? People hear that kind of a sentiment through movies and through music and through television shows and even through video games. It is very much out there in our culture. And as a result, there has never been a time in American history where it was more relevant for people like you and me to know how to give an answer for why we believe what we believe and that it is reasonable. And oh, by the way, I just want to say that uh, just a few weeks ago, I gave a talk very much like this, except it was eight hours long. Now, I'm assuming that's not the talk you'd like to have this evening. I'll take it by your laughter that it's not, but uh, I was talking to mostly people who are 60, 70, and 80 years old, and I don't see anyone that's old here tonight. You all look young and vibrant and beautiful, I just want to say. But if there were any older people here uh, tonight who would think, well, this kind of stuff, you know, I don't run into those kind of people. That's for somebody else. I want to tell you that I have people who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who on a weekly basis contact my ministry and say, my grandson is now saying that he's an atheist. My, my daughter is saying she's a part of some weird religion, and I don't know what to say to them. And suddenly the thing that seemed like it was this academic sort of side of Christianity that was for somebody else far away now becomes very, very much relevant in their own lives. So tonight, I think this is for us all, and we have a mandate from Scripture. So here's how I'm going to go about this this evening, and I hope you'll follow me on this. I'm going to uh, explain to you two different things. I'm going to give you a good reason to believe that God exists. And of course, you say, well, but Braxton, we already believe that God exists. Well, I hope you do, although it's possible not everyone here tonight does. But I want you to try to take notes or at least some mental notes so that you can share these things with others. But first, I'm going to give you reason to believe that God exists, that the Bible is telling you the truth when it says that God exists. And then I'm going to give you reason to believe that the resurrection of Jesus really did happen as a historical event. And you're going to hear me say this a few times tonight, but basically, if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, then Christianity is true, period. Amen? Now, when we have a talk like this, you might think, well, yeah, well what about uh, evolution versus creation? Or, or what about what should be taught in public school classrooms? Or, or what about those things in the Bible that look like they're contradictory to some people? You know, those are all very important discussions, and they're discussions we could have at some other time. But minimally, what I want to show tonight is that if God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead, then Christianity is true, period, no matter what you want to say about these other issues. Now, are you with me on that? If you're with me, say amen. I may work at a seminary, but I pastored two churches in the American South, so I'm used to amens, all right? Uh, I, I may be working at a seminary, but I want you to know that at heart, I am a loudmouth, leather-lunged, red-faced Southern preacher. That's, that's where I'm most at home, so the amens are perfectly fine with me. So take your Bible if you have one, and you probably don't even need to open there, but I, I'm going to ask you to open to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Most of you probably already have this memorized, but I, I'm going to give you uh, a, what we would call an argument for God's existence. Now, that may sound off-putting to you, but I want you to understand that, when, that you can give an argument without being argumentative, right? Your pastor said we should love atheists and we should have uh, relationships with them and, and be, you know, a, a, a voice of the gospel into their lives. And so we want to do everything with gentleness and respect. But an argument is just a reasoned explanation of why you should believe something. So I'm going to give you an argument or a case, if you like, that God exists. Now, it'll get a little bit complicated, but, but I'm going to, well, first let's look at Moses. Moses says in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now, that means that Moses in the Bible just flatly tells us there's a God and God made everything, right? That's what the Bible teaches. But what if you're talking to someone who doesn't take it for granted that the Bible's true? Well, you say, well, that's not right. It is true. Well, I know that, and we both know that. But here's the thing. If we're talking to someone who doesn't believe the Bible is true, here's the question. Could they know, is there any way for them to know whether or not there's a God, even if they didn't have the Bible? I think there is. In fact, Paul thought that there was. Do you remember in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 where Paul says, the invisible things of God, his eternal attributes and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul was saying, there's enough evidence that there's a God in just looking at the world around you and the beauty of his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. You should be able to look at all of that and know that there's a God, even if you didn't have the Bible, so no one has a good excuse if they don't believe in one maker God. Paul was talking to idolaters, but it works for people that don't believe in God today as well. Uh, But could we show them? I I think that we could. I think we could. Now, it's going to get a little bit complicated, so I want to know that you're with me. Are, are you all alive out there? Wave at me so I know that you're alive. Okay, looks, looks pretty good. Um, I, I, this could get a little bit complicated, but, but so I want to preface it with this. I have two human daughters at home. One is blonde, one is redhead, and I've got a brunette for a wife. So you can see what that's done to me, right? Uh, but I, I have, uh, you know, you all laugh at the most insulting moments. I'm just kidding. Uh, I can tell we're developing a good relationship here. But, I, so, but with these two daughters, both of them, they're different ages, but when they were both about six years old, they both came to me and said to me the same thing. And I bet some of your kids said something like this to you, whether you remember or not. They said, Daddy, I know there's a God. Oh, you do? Yeah, I know there's a God. Well, why? Well, because, Daddy, if there was no God, where did all this stuff come from? Right? who made everything. Now that's simple. That's even simplistic, the thinking of a child. But can I tell you something? It's also incredibly profound. In fact, it's so profound that that is really all I'm going to say tonight in my case for God's existence. There are a lot of things we could say to show that God exists. I'm just going to show you one. And it all boils down to what my six-year-old daughters knew, even at the age of six, that there has to be a God because if there were no God, where did all this stuff come from? Now, if you want to wade in a little bit deeper, we could go a little further and say it like this. So if you're taking notes, you might put something like this down. God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Now, you all are with me on that, right? You're still with me. I haven't said anything too complex. Okay, well, then uh, that that seems pretty obvious to a six-year-old girl, but let's go a little bit further and get a little bit deeper and look at it how we might say it to someone who doesn't take it for granted that God exists, who we're trying to talk to about why they should believe that God exists and that what Moses says here is true. Now, we could say it like this, and we're going to get a little, we're going to get this, by the way, if, you, if you're taking notes and I go a little too fast, I, I want to say something. Don't you hate it when people come and give talks like this, and, and, and they give this great talk, and the whole thing in the end you find out, they're just trying to sell you some book. Don't you just hate that? I hate when they do that. That said, I have a book. And... Um, Your pastor told me I could bring some and sell them to you, but I didn't feel good about that. So I'll tell you what, you can get this book on Amazon, Core Facts is the name of it, and uh, it'll lay all this out in in great detail. But, But basically, here's if we're going a little bit deeper, we'd say it like this. We'd say everything that starts to happen or begins to exist must have a cause for its starting to happen or beginning to exist. Do you understand what I'm saying? If something fell over behind me on the stage right now, 
you would assume something caused that to fall over, right? Because when something happens in this world or when something begins to exist, there was a cause for that. Now, you all are looking at me like animal crackers right now. So are you still with me? Are you still alive out there? Check the pulse of the person sitting nearest you so I know that they're alive. Some of you are actually doing it. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so when something, when something happens, there's a, there's a cause for it. Now, the universe began to exist. There was, a, there was a point where our universe came into existence. Now, if that's true and everything that begins to exist or starts to happen has a cause for it, then what does that tell us? The universe had to have a cause too, didn't it? Now, this seems simple enough, but, but you know, I think that children on some level have a greater awareness of things and, and are on some level smarter than those who go through college and through university and get PhDs in philosophy and physics. Because there's a lot of people out there who go through and become atheists and become PhDs in philosophy or physics, and I'm not trying to be upsetting or discourteous to those people, but it's only then that they start thinking something like the universe could come to exist completely uncaused, out of nothing at all, by nothing, for nothing, from nothing. It's like worse than magic. Because at least with magic, you've got a magician and the hat to pull the rabbit out of. But here you've got no magician, no hat, and the rabbit and everything else in the universe just pops into existence uncaused out of nothing at all, for nothing, by nothing, from nothing. Um, but I think the kids are a little bit, uh, have a greater intuition about these things. When my oldest daughter was nine months old, uh, I decided to run an experiment on her. Now, don't look at me like that. Don't look at me like that. I'm a good, I'm a good father, okay? Just take my word for it. But, uh, but I decided I wanted to see if she had developed the dexterity that if I, catch, if I tossed her a ball, if she could catch it in her, in her hands. And so I took this ball and I tossed it to her and it hit her in the head and she fell over. But don't, listen, don't get upset with me, all right? Because it wasn't, it wasn't hard. It was a soft ball. I mean, it wasn't a soft ball. <laughs> But it was a soft ball, right? And so she fell over. But then she did something amazing. And it showed me that my daughter was going to grow up one day to be a philosopher. She looked around for what had caused her to fall over. And she saw the ball. And I thought, oh my goodness. She has realized at nine months old that when something starts to happen or begins to exist, there's a cause for it. And then she looked around for something further. What was she looking for? She saw the ball and she looked around for what had caused the ball to fly through the air, causing her to fall over. It's brilliant. She was already at nine months old recognizing not just that things that happen have causes, but that there's a causal chain. It was amazing. And when she put it together and saw my hand up like this and realized that I had done this to her, she decided in retribution to make an angry face and to cause something all her own, a dirty diaper. <laughs> which caused me in turn to call out to her mother. Now isn't that an elegant and beautiful expression of cause and effect? Maybe not. But what it does show is that children at a very young age already understand that if something starts to happen or begins to exist, there's a reason for it, there's a cause for it. Now, are you all still with me? Nod your heads. Because this is where it's going to get, this means yes in Evansville, Indiana. Does this mean yes down here in Fairhope? All right, good, good. Just making sure. Don't hurt yourself, just making sure. But, but here's the thing. It gets a little bit more technical at this point because some of you out there are smart enough that what you're thinking is, you're thinking, okay, Braxton, that's fine. So the universe has to have a cause. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's God. How do we know what the cause is? What a brilliant audience you are to think of that question. 
Well, here's the thing. It does get a little bit technical here, but I think you can manage. And so straighten up your thinking caps and maybe tighten them up just a little bit because here we go, all right? If I'm going to lose you, this is the only part in the whole night where I might lose you, but I don't think I will because you Fairhopians are known for being brilliant. And so uh, let's, how could we know what the cause of the universe is? Could we know? Could we know? I think we could. Um, we can go about it by figuring out what isn't the cause. So what is the universe made of? Well, the universe is made of basically three things. Matter, the stuff that our physical bodies are made of and all the stuff in this room right now is, is matter, right? But then you've also got space. Not just outer space, I mean the space that we're inhabiting right now, that's a part of the universe. And time, did you know that time is a created thing? It's a part of the physical universe? That's everything, that's the universe, time, space, and matter. Generally speaking, that's the whole world, that's the universe. Now, now, so here's the thing, even though it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, and it seems so counterintuitive, it's not just matter, but even space and time. And this is not something a theologian says, this is not just what Christians think. There are many physicists that will grant, who are atheists, who will grant that if the universe was not, then time and space and matter would not be. That's amazing, isn't it? So here's what that means. Whatever serves as the cause of the universe isn't those things because things can't bring themselves into existence. You didn't choose to be born, did you? You didn't choose to be born. Things don't bring themselves into existence. Some things happened that led to you being born that I'm not going to discuss in this rated PG sermon tonight. But, there, but things, don't, things don't bring themselves into existence. So if what we're trying to explain is time, space, and matter, then whatever caused those things isn't those things. Now, guess what? I realize that at this point, this is the moment. This is it right here. I've done this talk enough that I know that for some of you, you were with me until now, and now you're afraid that I've lost my mind. So let me give you an analogy that I think might, might be helpful. Uh, and if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this, that's fine. It, it won't cost you too much. But how many of you out there are familiar with the Toy Story films? Raise your hands. Anybody out there? Okay, many of you. Um, my daughters love the Toy Story movies. And um, I, my favorite character is Woody the Cowboy. Is there anyone else out there? Your favorite character is Woody. Would you raise your hands? All right. How many of you, your favorite character is Buzz Lightyear? Anybody like that? Okay. How many of you, your favorite character are those little green aliens that worship the claw? The claw, the claw. Okay, ma'am, that could indicate a serious psychological problem. I just, I just, we can't help you with that, but we'll pray over you at the end of the service. I'm just kidding. But uh, what if we were considering this created world of the Toy Story universe, right? This digital created world that's, that's, that's animated. And someone were to ask me, Braxton, who or what caused the Toy Story universe, that cartoon world, to come to be? And I said, well, Woody the cowboy is my favorite character in the film, so I think he's the cause. I think he's the one who brought those movies into existence. That'd be absurd, right? Why would it be absurd? Because he's in the film, right? He's part of what we're trying to explain. So he can't be a part of the explanation. We know that someone, many someones, outside of that cartoon universe, that fictional world, outside of it had to create it, right? Digital animators, screenwriters, musicians, a director, people like that. Because nothing in that universe could create that universe. And in the same way, are you with me? Are we okay? In the same way that Woody and Buzz and those aliens can't cause that universe to come to be, the players in our universe, time, space, and matter, can't cause themselves to come into existence. Here's what that means. 
that the cause of our universe must be a spaceless cause. It must be a timeless cause, or you could say eternal. And it must be a non-material cause, non-material. Or we could say, so it's not natural. Nature is the whole universe. It's not natural, but it's, what would be a good word for something that's not natural, but beyond natural? Supernatural. I like that. Let's go with that. Supernatural. It's a supernatural cause. Now, we can go beyond that because it also has to be powerful enough to create the universe, right? Otherwise, it can't be the cause. And there's a lot more we could say, but I'll just stop with this. It would have to be wise enough to do it so that it worked, which means it would have to be a mind. So that means that in just 16 minutes probably of us talking so far, we've already come to, don't look at your watches. (laughs) In just 16 minutes of us talking so far, we have looked at one of the classic arguments for God's existence that's been around for more than a thousand years. And here's what it shows us, that the cause of this universe must be a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind as the best explanation for the universe. And you know what? That is what every Jew and every Christian today means when they look at Genesis 1-1 and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that was complicated, so let me back up real quick and run over it again. The universe needs a cause because everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. The universe has a cause. The cause can't be the stuff that's in it, so it must be a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind. And if that's too complicated for you, remember the safety rail that I gave you to hold on to. All we're saying is what my six-year-old daughter said all by themselves, both of them. Daddy, there has to be a God. Because if there's not, where'd all this stuff come from? Now, do you see the beauty of that? You can talk about it at a very deep level or you can talk about it at the level of a six-year-old girl. And, And I wanna tell you something. I know there's more to say and I know for some of you, maybe there are things about that that haven't clicked yet. And all I have time to do tonight is to whet your appetite. But that's just to say, these are powerful reasons to believe. And it backs up what the Bible teaches. And you know what else? That argument was, was brought, I use that argument in that debate that he was talking about with probably the world's leading debating atheist right now, Matt Dillahunty. And you can watch it on YouTube. To my mind, he had nothing to say. Why? Because of the power and the force of that case for God. Now, that, that's great. That's okay. So we've got God. But because you're such a smart crowd, I can hear it. I can hear it across the waves of your thinking tonight. You're already thinking, yeah, okay, Braxton. So we have a God, but how do we know it's the Christian God? Oh, you're such a smart crowd. I'm learning more and more how brilliant you are. But how do we know that it's the Christian God? It could be the Muslim God. It could be some other religion, right? How do we know that it's the Christian God? And for that, we move on to the second part. You remember a moment ago I told you that, that there was two things I was going to try to show tonight. That God exists and that God raised Jesus from the dead because if he exists and if he raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true, period, right? So now we're going to move on to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, by the way, here's where I want you to do something. You can go ahead, first of all, and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we're going to look at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But while you're turning there, uh, I also want to say something else. As we look at the resurrection, the resurrection is the historical centerpiece of the Christian faith. If Christ be not raised, we of all men are most miserable, right? If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, do you understand the the force of this? 
If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, that what we're doing here tonight is completely pointless. What we do here on Easter Sunday, this building, in fact, would be better used for something else if Jesus was not raised. Jesus is, his resurrection is the historical centerpiece. It all hangs on the resurrection. And you know what? So much so that in Acts 17, Paul said at the end of his sermon on Mars Hill and the Areopagus, some of you have heard that story, before they go off the rails and don't want him to preach anymore, he says that it's the proof that God gave for the existence of this one true God is that he raised a man from the dead. This is the proof, this is it. And even if you didn't really care much for what I just said a moment ago, if you get this, you'll get it all. And I'm gonna make it easier on you. I'm going to give you what is called an acronym or an acrostic. And those can be cheesy. And I'm gonna give you a cheesy acrostic here. You know, that's the thing where every letter stands for something else. Um, I've learned recently that as I have 11 year old daughter, my my oldest daughter's 11 now, and, and something weird has happened where she wants me to give her money and then go away. (laughs) It's the strangest thing because she used to think that I was cool and that my jokes are funny. Now she thinks that my jokes are lame and I've become a weird dad. Do we have any other weird dads here tonight or you used to be a weird dad? All right, there's many of you. Yeah, I've become a weird dad and, and so this is kind of a weird dad thing. But I'm gonna give you an acrostic in a moment, and if you can remember it, then the best thing that can happen here tonight in our time together is you'll walk out of here already having a way to have here tonight, even if you've never heard of this stuff before, you'll be able to walk out of here and have a meaningful conversation with someone who doesn't believe about the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, it doesn't just work with atheists, it works with Muslims, it works with uh, Jews who are not Christians, it works with Hindus, it works with all kinds of people. And and I'm gonna give you that acrostic in just a moment, but first I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through eight. By the way, by a raising of hands, if you have 1 Corinthians 15, three through eight in front of you, does anybody have a Bible where that passage is in a little bit of a different format, almost like you'd have poetry, or, or, or you do, I see a lady over here. Anybody else? Raise your hand if it's in a different format. Okay, it's just me and you, sister. I don't know what kind of Bible everybody else has. Um, but, but the reason for that is because that passage Verses three through eight, or three through seven, is believed by New Testament scholars and historians who are Christians or not Christians, some atheists, some agnostic. It's believed to be a creed of the early church that goes back to within five years of Jesus' death. Now that's powerful because 1 Corinthians is written in the 50s AD, the early to mid 50s AD. But that passage goes back to within five years of the events of Jesus' death for reasons that if we have more time, we could get into, but you said you didn't want the eight-hour lecture, so I'm trying to honor that. But, but, but uh, here's the thing. You might say, if, if there is a skeptic here or not, you might say, well, Braxton, you can't use the Bible to prove that the Bible is true. Well, here's the thing. I'm using a passage out of the Bible here tonight that even enemies of the faith who are in those fields of study agree is a historically useful passage that really does go back to within five years of Jesus' death, and so it really does tell us what early Christians believed. So I'm using the passage that enemies of the faith would allow me to use. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Is this at all interesting to you? I just want to make sure. Okay, you're nodding your heads. Thank you. Um, So let's read it, and he's telling them what the gospel is that he's preached to them. Verse three says, for I pass on to you as most important what I also received. And here it is, 
That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who was the family skeptic, by the way. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, to Paul. Now, that's the gospel that Paul preached to them. That's what he wanted them to remember as the central message. Now, here's what I'm going to give you. Here's my acrostic as we look at a passage like this. And if you want to write it down, here's what I recommend. I recommend that on a note-taking app or on a piece of paper, you write this down vertic vertically up and down on your left-hand side of the page and leave space between each letter because, as I say, it's a weird dad acrostic or acronym that, that, uh, that you have to take. Each letter stands for something else, all right? So here it is. It's the word facts, F-A-C-T-S. F-A-C-T-S, facts. Because we're gonna look here at the facts of the resurrection. Again, uh, I, I did not come here to sell you books, but that's why the title of my book is Core Facts. And so you can, you can remember it that way. So here it is. So the letter F in facts is for fatal, fatal. Like a fatal heart attack, <laughs> fatal. Um, because Jesus' wounds on the cross were fatal. And that's to say he died by Roman crucifixion. They were fatal. Now you might say, okay, Braxton, but, that, but, but that's a mundane thing. Everybody dies. Why, was it, why is it important for you to say that Jesus died? Why is it important for Paul to say that Jesus died? Well, there are two reasons. For one thing, theologically, he died for my sins and for your sins and for the sins of every individual on planet earth, amen? But secondly, it's also important for this reason and for our purposes here tonight, because when people challenge the resurrection, some of them, not many, but some, when they challenge that the resurrection really happened, often they don't do it the way you'd think. They will grant, many of them will grant that 500 plus people, like that passage says, really did think they saw Jesus alive and that they did see him alive, but the reason they saw him alive was not because he resurrected, but because he never really died on the cross. This is called the apparent death theory. The idea is that Jesus was beaten and mangled and bruised and stabbed and all the things that the gospels say, except he didn't really die. And then some first century fishermen helped to apply some medical knowledge to him in the cool of the tomb and everything turned out okay. Thank you, sister, for laughing. Uh, more of you can laugh because that is laughable. And I could go into it if we had more time, but here's the short and skinny of it. People don't survive crucifixion. In fact, they certainly didn't survive crucifixion in the first century without our modern advances in medical technology. And secondly, this goes completely against the history of the Romans. Romans were pretty darn good at killing people. And especially if you gave a Roman executioner a radical like Jesus to practice upon, they were going to make sure he was dead. But after the cross, even if somehow somebody bungled it up, if he went through what happened on the cross, there's just no way. And for this reason, N.T. Wright, who is a well-known Christian uh, New Testament scholar and one of the top three on the planet that, when it comes to the resurrection, he says, and that they don't go about it, the, the best of them don't go about it this way. They don't, the best skeptics out there that are challenging that Jesus ever rose, they don't even use this because it's absolutely laughable as our sister shared with us a moment ago. 
So, so that's, but that's F. He, his, his wounds on the cross were fatal. He really did die by Roman crucifixion. In fact, to say that he didn't die, you'd have to go against all of the historical evidence that we have. You know, Josephus, who was an early Jewish uh, uh, historian, he wrote that Jesus died. Did you know that Cornelius Tacitus, who is considered the greatest historian of ancient Rome, he writes that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. He was executed under Pontius Pilate. So you have to go against all the evidence to believe such a thing. The majority of scholars that are atheist, agnostic, Christian, or whatever, believe that Jesus really did exist and that he died by Roman crucifixion. So F is for fatal. A, in fact, is for appeared. Appeared. Jesus appeared after his death. We saw that right here in this passage, didn't we? He appeared to the 12. He, he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to James. He appeared to me. He appeared. Now, that's shocking, isn't it? That the scholars, even the ones that don't believe, that they'll grant that? That people had, 500 plus people had experiences that they interpreted as appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, why, why is that? Why do we believe that? Well, one of the reasons is because of the rapid expansion of the early church. I mean, think about it. These people were changing where they lived because they had to leave because of persecution. These people were, um, were changing their religion. They were changing what day of the week they worshiped on. They were changing all kinds of things. What would cause that? There's a liberal Jewish scholar who is an enemy of the Christian faith named Paula Fredrickson, and this is what she says. She says, I don't know what they saw, but as a historian, I know they saw something. That's powerful, isn't it? Now, to give you a modern analogy for this, I thought about this a lot. This is the best I could do. Um, there is this phenomenon that people like me who from the time they were 10 till the time they were 20 lived in Nashville, Tennessee and got their first guitar on Broadway are aware of. And that is this phenomenon known as Elvis impersonators. I see that you've seen an Elvis impersonator before. How many of you in your lifetime, at least on television or something, you've probably seen more than one Elvis impersonator? Would you raise your hands? Now, I'm going to get the numbers wrong on this, but go search it when you get home because there actually is a Wikipedia article that breaks this down. But in the 1970s, there was something like 179, I think it is, Elvis impersonators on record Who's keeping track? I've got no idea. It sounds like a wasted life to me. But 179. In the 90s, there were something like 87,000. Again, who's keeping track? But that's the growth. And in about 40 years' time, it got to the point where everybody has seen an Elvis impersonator, or at least is aware of them, has seen them on TV or something. In fact, at that rate of growth, it is estimated that in the 2020s, one in every three persons will be an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> so just look to your left, look to your right. One of you is going to be him. <laughs> now, here's a question. If there never was an Elvis, that's about the same amount of time, 40 years. If there never was an Elvis, if he never had the pork chop sideburns that nobody understood, if he didn't have the flashy outfits and the number one hits and the movies and all those kind of things and play guitar and all those things, do you think we'd ever have had even one scraggly Elvis impersonator in the world? No, why do we have them? We have them because it's true. There really was an Elvis. He really had the, the pork chop sideburns, the flashy jumpsuits and all that stuff was real. And so you've got all these Elvis impersonators. By the way, my father led J.D. Sumner to the Lord. Do any of you know who J.D. Sumner is? The Stamps Quartet. Uh, J.D. Sumner, my father led him to the Lord, and he was Elvis's best friend and backup singer for many years. And um, my dad asked him on one occasion, J.D., if Elvis is alive. He's not alive. But if he is alive, but he's not alive, 
But if he is alive, where is he? And J.D. said, if he's alive, I'll tell you exactly where he is and exactly what he's doing. He's scraping and clawing to get out from under six feet of concrete because we buried him in the backyard at Graceland. (laughs) But Elvis is dead. But here's the thing. All of those Elvis impersonators exist because there really wasn't Elvis and all those things happened. In the space of about 40 years, everyone knew someone who was an Elvis impersonator or had seen one. In the same amount of time, Christianity grew so rapidly that there were people all over the Mediterranean world, so much so that across the Mediterranean, in Rome, everyone knew about these Christians. Why did it grow so rapidly? Interesting question. If there never was a Jesus, if he never walked on water, if he never healed the deaf and the blind, if he never claimed to be the Son of God, if he never was killed under Pontius Pilate, buried and rose again, if he never said he was coming again, would we even have one Jesus impersonator or Christian today or in the first century? Doubtful. You want to know why the Christian church grew so rapidly? It's because there really was a Jesus. It's because he really did walk on water. It's because he really did heal the deaf and heal the blind. He really did die under Pontius Pilate, crucified on a cross. He really was buried. He really rose again. And he really did say he was coming again. That's all true. And because people heard that and saw that, like Paula Fredrickson, that skeptical liberal Jewish scholar, I agree, they saw something that's powerful. So, he appeared. Then C is for committed. They were committed. They were committed to the point of death. They were committed to the point of death. This is one you've probably heard before, but the, the disciples, the apostles were willing to die, and many other of Jesus' disciples were willing to die for what they believed. Now, there's been a lot of research done on this. Have you ever heard of Josh McDowell? Some of you, Josh McDowell. His son, Sean McDowell, is also a Christian apologist now. And he uh, did his doctoral dissertation at this, I think at Southern Seminary. Do you know? I think it's Southern Seminary. And it was on the deaths of the apostles. And there's been a lot of research on this. We have good historical grounds for believing that the earliest Christians were willing to die for what they believed. Now, here's what I want to share with you. People will live for a lie so long as it brings them money, fame, power, the appreciation of the opposite gender, but they usually don't die for things they know are false. Now, if it, maybe, maybe we could say, well, maybe one of them did because maybe he was crazy or something, but all of them, all of them were willing to die for something they knew was false? That doesn't make any sense. So, so you might say, well, okay, Braxton, but that's fine. But, but what about those Muslim terrorists who flew the planes into the Twin Towers on September 11th? They, those people, they were dying for something that was a lie, didn't they? Well, yes, they did. And I can't imagine an act that would take more sincerity, twisted as it is, than something like that. But can I tell you, here's the major difference between them and the disciples who were willing to die. Those Muslims in the 21st century who flew the planes into the towers were not in a position to know for sure whether Islam was true or not. The earliest disciples were, because if it was made up, they were the ones who made it up. And people will live for a lie, they won't die for one. Some of y'all are looking at me kind of confused right now. I've never been here before. Maybe that's just how some of y'all look. I don't know. No. But let's, let's give you an analogy for this. And I'm almost done. Just hang with me. Let's imagine that, and this would be a bad time to get up and go to the bathroom because you'll think that I'm a heretic and it's too early in our relationship for you to already be thinking I'm a heretic. But, but let's imagine that we decided, let's imagine that we decided to make up our own religion. 
okay? And maybe we'll say something like that a swordsman, came, yes, a swordsman, came in here and, and killed Dr. Hankins by sticking him through with a sword. I know. I wish everyone could see the look on your face, man, when I said that. <laughs> and he fell over. And, uh, and, and we called the paramedics and all that. But an hour later, while we're still out crying and sobbing, of course, because you would cry and sob, right? Okay. And, and then suddenly, suddenly, magically it seems like, the hole in Dr. Hankins' chest closes back up. And he stands up more alive than ever before and begins to expound wisdom to all of us. Now, let's just say we decide we're going to make that up. And we'll need a name for this religion, so maybe we'll call it something like Hankinsism or... Maybe, no, no, let's, let's go with hankyanity, all right? That's because it sounds all the more ridiculous, right? And, and, and let, we start spreading this religion and we start getting more people in our, in our congregation of this growing religion. And in fact, we get conference circuits and we start speaking about it. And some of you are writing books and you're getting very wealthy and people are giving you a lot of attention. And then finally, you're invited to go on the Today Show and Good Morning America to talk about hankyanity and how it's changed your life. And then suddenly, someone puts a gun to my head in an alley somewhere and says, Braxton Hunter, you admit that you made this all up. You deny it right now, or I'm going to end your life. I don't know about you folks in Fairhope, but I know about me. I'm going to say, yes, sir, we made it all up. Why? Because people may live for a lie so long as it brings them money, power, fame, but they don't die for things that they know aren't true. doesn't make any sense, especially not as many as did. So C is for committed. T is for testimony. Now, you might think there that I mean something like the testimony of the Bible or the testimony of the earliest Christians or something like that. I don't mean that. The only reason I put the T there, well, there's two reasons. One is very practical. I needed to make the word facts. <laughs> See how honest I am? But that's not really it. I, the T is there because I want to, again, affirm because I've noticed that Christians, when I teach this, they'll go off and they'll start using this in the, and, and they'll forget to add this part. They'll forget this feature. But it's very important that you affirm to people that the testimony of modern scholarship is that these first three things are true. You say, well, I don't care. Who cares what those scholars think? Well, the person you're talking to might care because the person who's a skeptic will be impressed to know that critical scholarship agrees with these things, that Jesus died, that people had experiences that they interpreted as appearance of Jesus after his death, and that the earliest Christians were willing to die for that belief. They were committed to that point. Now, folks, listen to me. Look at me. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you some simple Jacksonville logic for all you sophisticated Fairhopians. Here it is. If Jesus died and 500 plus people said he appeared to them after the fact and they were willing to die for it, not only change their lives, but die for the claim, the best explanation from where I'm sitting is that God exists and God raised Jesus from the dead. And guess what? If that's true, that's the conclusion that Lee Strobel came to. That's the conclusion that Josh McDowell came to. That's the conclusion that many atheists have come to and become Christians. And you know what? That leaves me with S, and S is for salvation. If Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to say what another apologist, Frank Turek, often says. I'll put it this way. I've got a principle for my life. If someone rises from the dead, I believe whatever they say. <laughs> Especially if a man claims to be God and rises from the dead, I tend to believe him. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, then that means we should listen to what he has to say about the way of salvation and about repentance, and that he's the only way, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. 
We should believe all of the things that Jesus has to say about heaven and hell. We should believe all of that. S is for salvation because if God exists and he raised Jesus from the dead, Christianity is true and Jesus should be trusted and believed in. He died on a cross. But see, here's the thing. What the historians are not able to do that I want you to be able to do here tonight is understand this incredible, majestic point is that these are not dusty old facts like we would have about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. These are facts that are incredibly relevant to your life right now because if Jesus rose from the dead in demonstration that he was the son of God, then it means that what he said about you matters. He loves you, he died to take your sin away because someone had to pay the price, and he's coming again one day. And all you need to do is trust in him, turn from your sin, that's repentance, turn to a life with him. And the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved.